Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert. I'm Simone Malas. How's it going, Simone? I'm good. I'm good. What happens when a Terrio and a Nabear walk into a radio station? <laughs> I guess we're about to find out. <laughs> uh, so we're excited to be here with you for episode two. As a reminder, if you want to catch what you missed in the first episode or just subscribe, you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Delta Dispatches. Uh, you can subscribe to get uh, past episodes of Delta Dis- Dispatches and listen every week on iTunes and Google Play in addition to WGSO 990 AM. So we got tremendous feedback after our first um, our first session. So hopefully this one will go as well. Uh, we also had lots of people wanting to be our guests. So we have some great shows lined up for the future. Um, and we'll have some of our friends and, as we mentioned last week, some of our foes on to talk about important topics. Um, next week, I think we're going to cover diversions. We're going to talk about fisheries. We're actually going to talk about the city of New Orleans. Yeah, and what are we talking about today? So we're going to talk about the master plan. Um, Every five years, the state comes out with their coastal master plan, and we have some of the best of the best of the master plan team lined up to talk to us today. So we're looking forward to talking to both of them. I'll be with you in the first half. You'll be there in the second, and then we'll get back together again at the end. That sounds good. Well, uh, enjoy your interview with your guest, and uh, I will talk to you later in the show. All right. Bye, Jacques. All right, so our first guest uh, who will be joining us by phone is Bryn Haas. Bryn is the Chief of Planning and Research Division at the CPRA, or the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the state entity that's responsible for um, restoration and protection, and most importantly, what we're going to talk about today, the master plan. Uh, Bryn, we're going to give a little obituary right now about you. He holds degrees in marine biology and oceanography from Auburn and LSU. We'll talk about that in a little bit, about how you can be a dual tiger. Uh, But he also has over 20 years of experience in coastal wetlands, ecology, restoration, and regulation. Really, I've had the pleasure to work with Bryn most recently in, in the past and, and leading this master plan effort. So welcome to the show, Bryn. Thanks, Mom. Good to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for being on. You're our first state guest, um, so no pressure. Uh, hopefully this goes well and we can have more of our CPRA friends on in the future. Uh, let's talk about this master plan. I am sure you are not tired of talking about it yet, uh, but let's tell everybody about why we have a master plan and, and why we're talking about it today. Absolutely. Well, um, no, I'm, I'm not tired of talking about it yet. It's an extremely important issue for, for the state of Louisiana and indeed for the entire country. Um, hopefully most of your listeners are aware, I know you are, so Proportions. We've lost a tremendous amount of our coastline, almost 2,000 square miles over the last 80 or 90 years or so. And uh, if we don't change the way we're conducting our business, essentially, and doing our work along our coast over the, uh, the future, you know, we anticipate that we'll lose uh, something on the order of about that much, uh, you know, into the future. And so, recognition of that that um, that problem, that that uh, crisis that is facing our coast, and legislature form. Uh, our agency, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, and, uh, told us to go forth and develop a master plan to try to um, try to address those issues to help stem the tide of coastal weather loss and protect our citizens uh, from hurricane and storm damages. So why now, Bryn? Um, tell us a little bit about the history about why you need another plan or why do we need this update five years later? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, as, as, as you all um 
the Louisiana's case is, is an extremely dynamic place. It changes you know, day to day and, and certainly year to year. And um, much like, uh, you know, families uh, needs may change, and it's a good idea to sort of assess uh, insurance needs or something along those lines, for example. That's a pretty dry example. But our needs change across our coast. Um, you know, we, we have uh, major events like hurricanes that can significantly impact our um, our landscape. And, um, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work as well. And as we're doing that work, we're learning more about um, uh, how to implement the projects that we are conducting in a better way. Uh, science and technology certainly gets better. And as those things improve uh, and we update the plan, we're able to incorporate those improvements as lessons learned, uh, you know, the updated landscape, for example, uh, as we uh, as we advance the plan and update the plan every five years. So um, it's a way to keep ourselves in check and ensure that we're doing the correct things and uh, doing the, the most good that we can for our coast. Um, and not just developing a plan and then and expecting it to be uh, fresh and applicable and, and appropriate, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. So, Bryn, let's talk specifics. What's, what is specifically different about this plan than the 2012 plan? I know that you've had improvements to modeling and some changes to some conditions on the ground, those kinds of things. So let's talk about mm-hmm. what, what's the real difference between 2012 and 2017. Yeah, there's, there's a few of those. Um, you know, you, you hit on a couple of them, and I did as well in terms of lessons learned. We're going to incorporate some of that stuff into our, our new uh, um, planning process. And, and uh, you know, we've really been able to improve on the on the science and sort of technical side of things, which is, you know, the science and engineering is really the bedrock of, of our planning. And it's it's, it's what um, uh, has enabled us to, I think, um, you know, be the envy of, of uh, much of the country, in fact, in terms of how we, we plan for our coast. But, um yeah, you know, we, we evaluate our projects and evaluate the plan, develop the plan through um, some um, some pretty heady stuff, and some, as you mentioned, uh, technical models and and um, uh, you know uh, estimates of what the uh, coastal landscape looks like and so forth. And so um, we really weren't done with, done with the 2012 plan, and, and we asked ourselves, you know, what are some things that we think we can do better? How can we improve these? Whether it's additional data collection, refining grids or models. Um, you know, um, uh, tapping uh, different experts uh, in different fields and so forth. And, and so we're able to do that uh, as part of the, the 2017 update and improve really those analytical tools that we've used to help uh, evaluate the projects and plan that we ultimately develop. We also, um, you know, we don't think that we have all the answers. We don't think that we know everything at CPRA in terms of what the right projects are. And so we went to the public and said, you know, what are the what are the projects you guys want us to consider? What are the things that y'all are interested in us doing along our coast? What are the, you know, projects that need to be evaluated? So we put two calls out in about the 2014 time frame <laughs> to, um, uh, you know, request some of those ideas and, and ask folks um, um, to solicit uh, or to provide those to us so that we could evaluate those as part of this, uh, this plan development process. And certainly we did that. Uh, some of those projects are incorporated as part of the draft plan. There's a um, uh, kind of an increased emphasis on um, on communities as part of this plan, and you know, obviously the the reason we want to restore our coast in the first place is is for our people. Uh, coast of Louisiana uh, is home to you know over two million people, and as I alluded to before, it supports you know the entire state region and and indeed the nation with a lot of important functions. Um, and so, um, anyway, the reason we're you know obviously want to restore the coast in the first place is for those folks that live along the coast and others. And um, so there's a, um, you know, an increased discussion in terms of how coastal issues really impact our coastal communities, impact our people uh, in terms of things like how they might insure their homes and, and uh, you know, issues like that, that certainly are, um, uh, you know, near and dear and, and hit close to home as well. Um, 
we um, um, have, uh, you know, further developed our uh, non-structural program, which is a form of risk reduction or hurricane protection that's a little different from what we typically think of structural features like levees and, and floodgates and so forth. And non-structural program, um, you know, involves things like elevating homes or floodproofing businesses or voluntary acquisitions where those might seem uh, be deemed necessary. And so, um, you know, in 2012, we discussed that a little bit, but it was really conceptual. Uh, we didn't have a, a very good estimate of what that might look like or what the um, uh, you know what the program might actually look like, and so we've uh, uh, put a lot more meat on the bones in terms of, of uh, estimates of cost and mitigation measures for various structures and, and what that program might look like this go around. So those are some of the some of the major uh, major differences. I'd, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say, and certainly uh, you know Simone, you and your group took took part in this and, and helping us really kind of beef up our outreach and engagement. I think in our communications as it related to. Uh, developing this plan as well. I think um, we've done uh, a much better job this go around than uh, uh, than we did last time. So, Bryn, give us the Cliff Notes version of of the draft plan that's on the street right now. How many projects? How much money? Um, mm-hmm. Any any cool you know short version of what what it took you five years to come up with and what over six thousand pages of appendices. Just give us the short and sweet version of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a it's a fifty year, fifty billion dollar plan. Um, and when I say fifty billion dollars, I have to make sure folks understand that that's a uh, that's not an aspirational budget or something that we're shooting for. That's a constraint. That's essentially the amount that we think is plausible that might come to the state over the next fifty years or so. Certainly, if we had more money, uh, or if we felt like we were going to get more money, we we could we could in fact do some more. But uh, uh, it, it involves a roughly uh, one hundred twenty projects. Uh, there are seventy six restoration projects. Those are things like diversions, uh, barrier islands, moisture creation projects, ridge restoration projects, hydrologic restoration projects, and so forth. Uh, there are 32 non-structural projects that have been identified, and and uh, those are uh, you know all across the coast and in various geographical areas along the coast. And then 20 structural protection projects are the part of this uh, part of this plan. So, so Brian, um, we'll um, I I don't want to cut you off, um, but I do want to save the important stuff. I want I want to uh, when we get back from the break, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about non-structural, and of course, want to talk about me a little bit more and and that outreach sure. work. Um, so, if that's okay with you, we still have a lot more to cover, talking more uh, details about specific components of the master plan. But we always like to end on a fun note. So, Bren, whiskey or bourbon? I think I know the answer oh, to bur- this. Yeah. Bourbon. <laughs> I think I knew that. <laughs> All right. We'll talk a little bit uh, more about you and your work and the master plan when we come up after the break. Thank you. All right, we're back. This is Simone Laws. I'm the executive director of Restore a Retreat, and we're on Delta Dispatches. It's our show to discuss Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. So, Bren, whatever you're doing during the break, stop uh, so you can talk to us again. Uh, we have a real serious question moving forward. Um, we want to know how do you get from an LSU tiger to an Auburn tiger? Explain. That's a good question, and that's not the first time I've been asked that. So um, you should have a good answer Baton by Rouge. now, hopefully. I grew up in Baton Rouge, and um, everybody I knew was going to LSU, and I kind of just wanted to do a little something different, maybe get out of town for a bit, 
And so that's what I did. I ended up going to Auburn. Um, you corrected yourself, to, though. Yes, I remember. I did. I, I came back. I couldn't stay away too long and uh, uh, ended up getting a degree from LSU as well and uh, have lived here uh, ever since and uh, hadn't looked back. Yeah, you're, uh, you're an outdoors guy, right? You like to hunt and fish. Your son's too, right? So yep. favorite season, deer, duck, crawfish, or snowball? There's only one right answer for that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd have to say duck season. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bird hunter at heart. I like, to, uh, I like to chase those ducks and doves and woodcock and so forth. Good, good. You certainly have uh, the outdoors experience, and you've worked in coastal Louisiana for a long time. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Let's let's talk about that um, the plan, the master plan um, that's on the yeah. streets right now in a draft form. Uh, it is open to public comment until March 26. There's uh, various different ways that you can comment. If you go on the state's website, coastal.la.gov, there's an easy way where you can click on a simple button and express your support or, or concerns about the project, about the plan itself. Uh, it also certainly is where you can find the plan, all of the appendices. Uh, it's also available in four different languages, right, Bryn? That's right. That's right. Thank you very much. Samantha. Yes, you have some crafty outreach, folks. Um, no, right. let's talk about that a little bit. We uh, Restore Retreat was grateful to have the support of the Greater New Orleans Foundation to assist with some of their outreach efforts. Uh, one of them was to translate the parts of the executive summary and document into French, Spanish, Vietnamese, and of course, it's in English. And you know, we want to help you guys expand your reach because those are all certainly stakeholders in Louisiana's coast. But this is really an international plan. There are lots of folks watching that. Um, and, and to speak to that international po- uh, point, something that comes up a lot and what we do is resilience. And, and part of resiliency also includes non-structural measures like um, flood, flood proofing, home elevations, and of course, voluntary acquisitions. So I have to tell you, Brent, I think that's the part where um, I think y'all have done uh, some of the greatest work forward talking about the non-structural program. So do you want to hit on that just a little bit about why non-structural is this piece along with restoration and protection and some of the work that y'all have done to advance that particular area? Sure, absolutely. And I, you know, I'd have to agree with you in terms of advancement between 2012 and 2017. That's really one of the big differences is. And, um, you know, I guess the first question might be, why do we need, you know, a non-structural program? Uh, why don't we just build levees everywhere and floodgates everywhere? And, you know, the real answer to that is, and, and it's a hard answer, it's not one that we'd like to give, is that we simply can't do that in all places. Um, uh, Louisiana's geography doesn't necessarily lend itself to that in all places. And, um, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have a, a real funding constraint in terms of what projects we can actually implement and pay for. Um, and so, the, the you know, the harsh reality that, uh, is part of the master plan and indeed is important most of our lives in terms of how we, how we make decisions. It generally our, our budget, our paycheck, uh, you know, affects how we make those decisions. And so it does as part of the master plan as well. And so one of the alternatives to, um, you know, some of the structural, um, protection features that might not be feasible or, or, um, uh, you know, appropriate in, in certain areas is to do the, the non-structural where we can go in and, and, um, you know, the, the, the idea would be to work very, very closely, of course, with the locals who have much more experience at this, frankly, than the state does um, at this point in time. And, um, you know, develop a program whereby we, you know, for people that are interested, we can, you know, have their homes elevated and hopefully um, uh, elevated to obviously a degree where they're out of a, a risk of, of flooding as a result of some, uh, you know, coastal flooding. Uh, or in the case of businesses or larger, um, you know, structures that they can potentially be flood proofed. 
Um, and then again, it's a really high, um, you know, repetitive loss type type uh, structures. Um, and if folks are are interested in, in this option, there's always the option for acquisition of, of some of those uh, some of those properties. So um, there's a lot of information, and I'll go ahead and, and give the, the plug Appendix E, uh, the master plan for folks that want to know. Um, oh, I read that. that. I read all of it. They, <laughs> that could be found at our website, of course. Uh, tremendous amount of information that discusses what uh, what the program might look like and you know how we came up with cost estimates and and uh, that kind of thing. So, Brent, I think um, you know, like I said, I've, I've had the pleasure of working you for with you for quite a while now. But one of the most recent um, engagement opportunities that we had started with something that the CPRA developed called the Flood Risk and Resiliency Viewer, which That's is right. this amazing tool. Um, do you want to talk about that, or do you want me to? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it and watch you, and, and you can fill in the gaps for the things that I, I get paid by the word, so it'd probably be better if you you talked about it. <laughs> um, well, no, certainly, um, you know the, the way that tool started, and, and, and uh, much credit goes to you and helping us uh, get that developed and, and uh, the word uh, spread about uh, about the tool being available was that you said the foot risk viewer, in which um, you know folks can go to an interactive uh, map again that's available on our website. Uh, you can type in your address uh, if you live in the coastal zone, and you can, uh, you know, you'll be taken to the uh, map, essentially to your uh, to your home, to your business, whatever the address may be, and it'll it'll let you know what your flood risk is, for example, now what it might be at year 25 or year 50, uh, both without implementing the master plan or with implementing the master plan. That's been expanded to include uh, the information in the 2017, expanded and updated to include the information in the 2017 draft master plan, so you can you can still um, you know assess that flood risk. Uh, in the way I just described, but you can also get project-specific information, uh, you know, by clicking on polygons if you're interested in a particular project or by looking at a particular area and seeing what projects might be there. So it's a really neat tool. Um, uh, again, it's interactive and it's visual, um, and uh, it's a good way uh, for somebody who's interested, particularly in one or just maybe a, a few parts of the coast, to really be able to uh, drill down into uh, some of the uh, important information that uh, that's available on online there. Yeah, and I, I can't say enough great things about the the flood risk viewer. It's an amazing tool. It's the way people like to get their information in terms of, you know, they can go to a computer. It looks like Google Earth. They can type their address in and they can find out their flood risk. And the fact that it's been updated for 2017 makes it very transparent in the data that you use. And so I encourage people to check that out. That's again on the, the coastalla.gov website. So, Bren, sadly, our time is up. So, um, yeah. We're going to kick it over to Denise Reed to talk about how this is a science-based plan. But I am so grateful to you and your time, but most importantly, your leadership that you've shown on the master plan and this issue. It is a very, very tough job, and I, I have seen you navigate it with grace and dignity. So there's a lot to be said about that. Thank you, Bren, for being on. Thank you, Samantha. All right, we'll come back with Dr. Denise Reed and my counterpart, Jacques. Welcome back. This is Jacques Hebert, and you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We're so excited to have our next guest on today's show, Dr. Denise Reed, Chief Scientist with the Water Institute of the Gulf. Dr. Reed is a nationally and internationally recognized expert in coastal marsh sustainability and the role of human activities in modifying coastal systems. She has studied coastal issues in the United States and around the world for over 30 years. 
Dr. Reed has worked closely with the Louisiana state government in developing coastal restoration plans, including the 2012 and 2017 coastal master plans. Her experience includes field research on the response of coastal wetlands to sea level rise, ecosystem restoration, and planning in the California Bay Delta, and review and advisory roles of a number of federal water resource planning issues, including post-Sandy work in the Northeast and restoration planning in Puget Sound. Welcome to the show, Dr. Reed. Thank you so much for being here. We're happy to have you on, and the state of Louisiana is happy to have you working, or lucky to have you working on this issue. Well, thank you very much, Jack. So for folks who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about the Water Institute of the Gulf and what your mission is? Yeah, the Water Institute of the Gulf is relatively new. We've only been around for about five years. We're an independent, not-for-profit research organization based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And we do applied research. Uh, We do... Uh, take science, information, knowledge that we know about different kinds of systems, and we apply it in ways that people can use. Uh, It's really very much about helping folks like the CPRA uh, go through and and utilize the great breadth of scientific knowledge that there is about a system like coastal Louisiana. Our job is to to put it in a way that CPRA can use it and help understand what their need is so that we can we can uh, make sure they get the science that they need. And you all have been, you know, really busy over the last, you know, several years, especially working on this master plan. So can you tell us a little bit about what your involvement has been, particularly in the 2017 draft master plan that Simone and Bren were speaking about earlier? Yeah, for the draft plan, we work closely with CPRA to coordinate a large team of experts who came together in different ways, different teams, to develop and apply a set of models, a set of numerical models that help CPRA understand what the effects of different restoration projects and different risk reduction projects are in terms of how much land is there on the coast and how deep the water is uh, during storm surge flooding. It's a very complex set of models and, and what it is essentially is a, is a set of computer code that we give certain assumptions, we tell it what the project looks like, and then it plays out over a 50-year time frame. It shows how the landscape will change as sea level rises, shows how the habitat patterns will change as the pattern of salinity and land and barrier islands changes over time. And then you, it, you can also say, okay, what does a project do? How does a project, a sediment diversion, a marsh creation project, a barrier island restoration, how does that steer the coast in a different direction? We do the same thing for, for uh, risk reduction projects, for things like uh, levees and flood walls. Um, storm surges come in, they move across the coastal landscape in the model, and then there are barriers in the way or not, and that alters the pattern of flooding and where the water goes. The CPRA uses that information to evaluate one project versus another project versus another project and to determine which one should be in the plan. And I'm sure that technology and that modeling is incredibly important. I mean, anyone that has spent time on the coast, lived on the coast, studied the coast can tell you just how dynamic uh, it is in terms of of being a system. Can you talk a little bit about those models? And particularly, I know that for this master plan, um, you know, the, the 2017 master plan is based on three distinct scenarios of future environmental change. So they're looking at land loss, subsidence, sea level rise, precipitation, storm frequency, and storm intensity. So why, why are there three different scenarios, and how have those uh, scenarios uh, impacted you know, what's included in the uh, draft master plan? 
Yeah, this is a really important point because what we do, the reason why we have to have uh, these computer models to do this is we're thinking about the future and we don't really know what the future holds for us. We don't know what the river's going to do in the future exactly. We don't know how fast sea level is going to rise. We're not quite sure when the storms are going to come, how many there are going to be, how intense they're going to be. And so what we do in the modeling is we take what we know about the coast, how it's changed in the past, and we construct these, these models that, that kind of can, can reflect that. They can put all the processes together and show how the landscape changes and how the storm surge moves differently. But then we have to play it out into the future. And so rather than just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, oh, well, nobody, has, nobody knows what the future is going to hold, we say, okay, well, what if it was this? What if it was that? What if it was the other? And essentially, fairly early in the process for the 2017 master plan, we scoured the, the new scientific literature that had been done. What were the latest predictions of sea level rise? Did we know anything more about subsidence than we did for the 2012 plan? What was the current thinking about changes in storm intensity and frequency? We scoured that knowledge and came up with this, what we call scenarios. And they basically set three different sets of conditions that we tested the projects against. We call them the low, the medium, and the high. And essentially, you know, there's a, a set of conditions that, that results in lower land loss and lower storm surge flooding, medium, and then a higher one. The higher one is not the worst case scenario by any means, but it is pretty kind of towards the top end of what people are thinking about now for, say, 21st century sea level rise. So having decided on those scenarios, and CPRA was very involved in, in the uh, identification and selection of the values that we use, we then take a project and in the model we say, okay, what would it do under the low scenario? What would it do under the medium scenario? What would it do under the high scenario? And CPRA takes all that information, and there's a there's a, a, a piece of um, another piece of computer code we call it the planning tool. Basically, you have a huge amount of information when you evaluate all these different projects over 50 years into the future uh, across all of these scenarios. It all kind of goes into the hopper. And then CPRA can ask questions, okay, saying, if I was going to spend $20 billion on restoration, which set of projects give me the most land under the low scenario? Which set of projects give me the most land under the medium scenario? which set of projects give me the most land under the high scenario? Or the same kind of questions for, for water depth during storm surges, for instance. And then that is how they, they, they sift through to the set of projects that essentially becomes the ones in the plan. Uh, there's an approach which, um, which is laid out in the plan which shows that if you uh, assume that the high scenario is going to occur, and you pick a set of projects that do best under that high scenario, then even if that doesn't play out, you're in a better situation than if you pick the ones that did best under the low scenario and the higher uh, conditions actually came about. I know this is a little bit confusing, but it's about kind of, you know, one way of putting it is, um, is planning for the worst but hoping for the best, right? Nobody wants those high conditions, that high rate of sea level rise and subsidence to actually occur. We don't know whether it's going to occur or not. But having projects that are going to do well, even if it does, is the best kind of way of thinking about the future. 
Right. And that that approach, you know, is, is really important in terms of, you know, making sure that we're getting the necessary protections and wetland buffers and that sort of thing for the future. And even though CPRA has this, and, and with the Water Institute, has this incredible model and planning tool that really looks out at over 50 years. And as you mentioned, folks can go to the master plan and see these maps for the low, medium, and high scenarios and, and learn more about them. But even though you're looking out over 50 years, there's still shorter uh, periods of uh, implementation, right? And implementation periods, I think, uh, at, at 10 years. So um, you're actually doing some planning um, from a more near-term perspective uh, in terms of what projects are going to be on the ground sooner. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's not just about how much land you get at the end of 50 years. Uh, often in the plan and, and often in presentations, we focused on what the coast looks like 50 years into the future. But one of the things that we do is, is there's, there's um, $50 billion is, is, the, uh, is the amount of money that, that constrains the projects in the plan, but it's not evenly spaced out over time. And so the idea is that you say, okay, what are the best projects to get on the ground in the next 10 years? And you focus on finding the best projects from all the different options that you have and getting those on the ground in the plan in the first 10 years, and hopefully on the ground, obviously, so that those benefits can then play out over a longer period of time. And then the planning tool says, okay, well, that was the amount of money that we had in the first 10 years. Now the next 20 years, okay, what's the next set of projects that should be done between you know, year 11 and year 20? And then the same thing for year 31 to 50. And so the projects play out over time. And what that does is it allows you to kind of uh, adapt as you go along. There will be more plans in the future. The, the, I think Bren mentioned how the, the uh, CPRA is required to update the master plan every five years. So say 10 years into the future when we're looking at the 2027 plan, we'll have an idea of how those projects that we, that we did first, how they played out. We'll also have an idea of, of which one of these scenarios uh, is starting to be realized on the ground. And so then kind of the, 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 the set of projects that goes from there can be steered a little bit one way or the other, depending on how things are playing out. We kind of call that adaptive management. And uh, the plan is set in that kind of framework, the idea that you have a path uh, that should be followed, and that's the way things are going to go. But you keep checking it and you keep touching it, and every five years as we have to update the master plan, that's a great kind of cycle to say, okay, are these still the right set of projects? Do we know anything more now than that we didn't know five years ago? And so this is all going to play out over time. All of those projects that are listed in the plan, the idea is not to build them all tomorrow. Yep. There's not, you know, nobody has that much cash available now. Yep. Uh, and we know that's unrealistic. And, you know, we're about to head into a break and we have much more to talk about with Dr. Reed when we come back. This is all fascinating. One thing I will note is that even though we are talking about a plan, CPRA has been doing a lot of work on the ground to date. And we talked about that in our last episode, but we're looking forward to have Dr. Reed back to talk a little bit more about this, this specific plan and some of the scientific elements. So we'll talk to you right after the break. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, where we're talking about Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We're here with Dr. Denise Reed, who is Chief Scientist of the Water Institute of the Gulf. So, Dr. Reed, you're a resident of Montague. Is that correct? That's right. So, you you know, you know, live on the coast, and you know it, and, and you work on it. Um, so, 
I'm curious, you know, have you seen changes in your community? We talk a lot about what, what people see firsthand on the ground in terms of land loss. I mean, have you seen your community and the wetlands around it change uh, since being there? Well, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I spent the first uh, 10 years or so after I came to Louisiana in the mid-1980s working in Cocodry, uh down at the Lumcon Lab. And, and, yeah, you can really see the shoreline erode there almost on a day-to-day basis, certainly year-to-year, and took a lot of measurements of that. In Montague, uh, it's been very interesting being there through through a number of storms. Um, Hurricane Andrew in, in 1992, Hurricane Lily in, I believe, 2002, um, and then uh, uh, Gustav. And actually, I can read a hur- uh, for Hurricane Katrina, we we're on the, uh, if you like, the good side of the storm, if there is such a thing as that. Uh, and so the water level didn't rise. But one thing that we did experience there was when... Um, Rita and particularly Ike a few years later came through very, very big storms that actually hit the western part of Louisiana, but the water level was rising uh, in Montague. And now we know a lot of people who've been flooded and cleaned out, been flooded and cleaned out, been flooded and cleaned out, and a lot of people who've moved up the bayou uh, just because they just don't want to do that anymore. It just gets really old really quickly. And, um, you know, they they want to live closer to where things are happening, and, and uh, there's not much keeping them there. In, in Montague, I will say that um, the grocery store just burned down through an accident, and it's not going to be rebuilt. And once you start losing things like the grocery store, then your community starts to become really less viable. Now, we're lucky we still have a middle school and an elementary school and a post office in Montague. And a church. And so I'm sure that will keep the community going for a while, but, but it really has changed. There were a lot more stores when I first moved there uh, in the late 1980s. And it is so hard to see those elements that are a fabric of the community, you know, start to disappear. And certainly, you know, we hear a lot about what happened with Katrina and with Rita, but really across the coast, you've had Gustav, Ike, Isaac, you know, that have just devastated so many communities and they're struggling still to come back. And so, you know, we're, and you certainly are working really hard day in and day out to really help restore as much of the land as we can and, you know, maintain as much of the land as we can into the future. I I remember seeing recently a CBS Morning piece um, that interviewed you about kind of what impact this land loss crisis is having on our archaeological record and and losing historical sites. And I was actually surprised. I mean, the hosts, uh, Gail King and others, were kind of shocked and moved by the piece. They said they had no idea that this was happening. I mean, why do you think more people across the country either aren't aware or, or moved to do something about it? Well, I think it's so remote from most people in the in the United States. Uh, this is a very, very large system. Wetlands and, and open water and a great ecosystem like this, it's just so difficult for people to imagine. It's, it's actually very difficult for a lot of people in coastal Louisiana to imagine because you can't get to it very easily. There aren't many roads. Uh, you and I know that the best way to see it is to fly over it, but not everybody can do that. And so you see what you can see from the road, and and you don't really appreciate that there's tens of miles of it beyond what you can immediately see. So I think that kind of scale is very difficult for people uh, to appreciate and and get their arms around, really. Um, And then the fact that the land is being lost land loss. What does that really mean? Land changing to open water. I think we're a little bit more used in this country to the idea of no net wetland loss being about, you know, let's not turn this wetland into a golf course or or a grocery store. Not 
let's make sure that the land and the wetland doesn't actually turn into open water and dissolve into the Gulf of Mexico. It's just a very difficult thing if you're not down here doing it every day to, to, to imagine. Right. And, and we talked a little bit about this on our last show, and we're certainly uh, going to talk about it on the next one when we have some folks from CPRA on to talk about sediment diversions. But, you know, part of what the master plan proposes is a return to natural systems, return to, um, you know, a sustainable system that can, you know, help actually maintain some of that land. And in that regard, sediment diversions are a product, product, project type that receive a lot of intent, attention and are important. So can you talk a little bit about sediment diversions, why they're important, both in their own right and in terms of supporting other, you know, both risk reduction and re- restoration projects? Well, using the Mississippi River to restore the vitality of the coast has been a linchpin of, of coastal restoration plans for Louisiana ever since I've been here, uh, from you know the, from the 19, late 1980s on, and even before that. I'm just thinking of the ones that I actually saw myself or worked on. So it's a linchpin issue. It's about, it's about the river created the coast, and the river has to be part of recreating the coast, uh, if you like. So sediment diversions mimic uh, a process uh, called crevasse splay, where under natural circumstances, we think that um, uh, a breaks opened up in the, in the, in the river levee bank, and, and the water started to come through. Not, not the whole river, but just a, a part of the river would flow through and deposit sediment and really build land. That's not quite the same thing as regular overbank flooding that would flood a very large area. So it's the way that we know geologically that a lot of this coast was built. It, it's just kind of a no-brainer to, to, for that to be one of the tools in our toolbox. But the important thing about them is that not just can they build land in the area that the water flows into, but the finer sediment, the clays and the muds, uh, can spread out over a much larger area and actually nourish marshes that are still there and help them keep their head above the water in the face of sea level rise, they can also help marshes that we create ourselves with dredge material. So we can build a marsh platform with a dredge. We're actually pretty good at that. There's an awful lot of that planned in, in the coastal master plan. But if you build it, build it with a dredge and it sits there and the water starts to rise because of sea level rise and the land starts to sink because of subsidence, then you've got to maintain that elevation. You've got to help that marsh keep its head above the water. And that fine sediment, that mud that travels a long way away from the diversion location can be a really important part of that. So they can build land directly, fill in open water areas. They can help maintain the wetlands that we still have, and they can sustain new wetlands that we build with dredge material. And so, you know, it's a threefer. And that that is a great promotion for our next episode where we're going to have uh, Rudy Simino and Brad Barth with CPRA to talk all about sediment diversions. And surprisingly, that's all the time we have uh, today. But Dr. Reed, thank you so much for this incredibly informative interview. um, And hopefully we can have you on back. Well, thank you very much, Jack. I'd be pleased to anytime. Thank you. And I'm back too. Uh, Hi, Dr. Reed. Dr. Reed has been <laughs> has been a, a very important person in in my coastal life as a, an executive director of Restore Retreat, and and she's somebody I, I really respect and admire. So I'm sorry I didn't get to interview you. I'd have some more fun stories. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to <laughs> next get into time. them next time. Next time. Uh, as we wrap up, we just want to remind you that there's still opportunities to comment on the master plan and check out that viewer on coastal.la.gov, the CPRA's website. And also this Saturday we're 
were having an event, Eat Alligator, Restore the Coast, at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, 1504 Eartha Castle Haley, uh, 2 to 4 p.m. with Chef Isaac Toops of Toops Meadery. He's going to be doing an alligator cooking demonstration, and we're going to be talking about coastal restoration. So be sure to come out for that. That sounds great, Jacques. So where can they find us if they missed us today? Be sure to go online at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Delta Dispatches, um, where you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play and get this episode and the previous one. And we will talk to you next week on Sediment Diversions. Another fun one under the belt, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's great. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day.